internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 698, very close to the infamous 700 people. So I'm Jim McDowell, hosting the show, Rich Jowett. You're over there in, in the UK, right, Rich? You're still there. For, you survived your 50th, right? Okay. Yeah, I've made it another week, so all's good. good. Yep. <laughs> As our friend Lynn said, every ride after 50 is like a victory lap, and I, I love that, Lynn. Very good. I think he said every lap around the sun is like a victory lap, which I thought was a That's it, perfect yeah. quote to live the rest of my life by. So thanks for that, Len. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Len for the, for the infinite wisdom of that one. Yeah. The wise sage. Yes. The wise sage that he is. Hey, this is the show. And if you like the show, if you could donate, that'd be greatly appreciate. You can go to our website, www.motopodcast.com. There's links for PayPal and Patreon. And you can donate for as little as $2 American to help keep the show running and the lights on. I want to thank Keith Kovac, Nick Saban, and Alan Fleming for their continued support of the show. And as subscribers, we'll be talking to you on July 9th. That's 3 p.m. Eastern, which is 7 p.m. UK, Rich. Is that correct? Well, I'm going to need to go and work that one out, but it's early evening. Over I, think it's four, I think it's a four-hour time difference yeah. for me to London, England. Yeah. So we'll go with that. So again, uh, haven't got the emails uh, for the invites sent out yet, guys, for that on the subscriber side. I'll be compiling that probably the end of this week and getting that done. Be sure we have all that out to you. Looking forward to seeing everyone, talking to everyone. Will be a good time. With that, Rich, I think we'll go to news and what we have. And let's us take in where we think the 2023 grid is because a couple pieces are starting to fall together here. From this weekend, we know that Alex Marquez is moving to Grassini to ride alongside Fabio Antonio on a Ducati. I thought that was a bit of a shock. Yourself? I was amazed, to be honest. I wonder, <laughs> Amazed? Okay, all right. Well, yeah, no, literally amazed. I mean, going back to, when, again, when we were talking about our uh, positing our kind of 2023 lineups. I didn't have Alex Marquez staying in the MotoGP paddock full stop. I thought he might be World Superbike bound. So is it the name that's kind of helping him to cling on? I don't know. I mean, I certainly didn't see him landing on a Ducati, even at the Grassini team, which is a great team. Let's make no bones about it. So, I mean, it's great for him, but I'm a little bit kind of ambivalent as to how or why that's happened. But let's see. I mean, He's a nice guy. He is a good rider. I mean, Moto3, Moto2 champion of years gone by. So he's got great pedigree, irrespective of who his brother is. So I don't know how long that deal is, Jim. Did, did you notice if it was a one or two year deal? I have not heard anything about the length of time. My guess is it's one year. Yeah. Perhaps with options, depending on performance so. and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I like you, you like me, we're going to stay again. Something of that nature. I mean, you would have to say that performance is over the period that he's been on the Honda in the LCR team and accepting that it's widely recognized and understood that the Honda is not an easy bike to ride but yeah that's why it was just a bit of a shock to me that he gets the ride over on the Ducati but you know fair play let's hope he has a great time on that bike plenty of other people are doing very well on it as we're going to talk about sure so that means that Benyai is definitely not back at Grissini so where is he is he on the coveted factory seat Benyai oh sorry Bashini. I was going to say, blimey, did you know something I didn't know? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Bastianini is not going to be with Grassini. It's a late afternoon here for me, guys, okay? So Bastianini is not going to be back with Grassini. So that means, does he have the coveted factory seat, or does he have a Premax seat? Wow. We do not know. We, Yeah, I mean... We still don't a... know. We only know that he's not at Grassini, so we know he's going somewhere. I suspect over this five-week break, we're going to learn where that is. We just don't know right now. 
either he ends up on a Pramac or he ends up in the works team. I mean, there's no other, there's no other choices, are there? No, there's not two other places there. We know Zarco's at Pramac. Yep. The question revolves around Jorge Martin, who, uh, if I heard correctly, he's going underneath surgery again to help with his hand. Mm-hmm. Still having some problem, feeling numbness, something going on that apparently is still a problem. Now, if, I, if given that, I think that means Martin stays with Zarco. As we said, we've said that we think that's where those two will be, that Premac's not changing. That then puts Benyaya with Bastianini on the factory team. And I do think that's still what's going to happen. As much as Martin is a talent, because the thing of it is, but Martin says if he's not on a factory bike, he's going to someplace else, which again, I postulated he's going to show up on a Honda. But that may be not true because we're almost 100% sure now that Alex Renz is going to be taking the seat left by Alex Marquez. So he'll be at LCR. And Juan, the, the rumors keep circulating around that Juan Mir's already got an HRC contract. Yeah. So I, is that really what's going to happen? I'd be surprised if Mir isn't on that bike, to be perfectly honest. But I'm a, again, I'm a little bit concerned. I won't say disappointed, but a wee bit concerned at the idea of Alex Rins on the Honda, given his propensity to have front-end crashes. I was very much hoping, as I've declared many times on the show in recent episodes, that I was pretty sure and hoping that Rins was going to end up on that satellite Aprilia. Mm-hmm. with the RNF squad. That's more and more Oliveira's bike. Yeah, that's how it looks. I think it? that's where yeah. that one's going. That, that's Oliveira's bike. And if Darren Bender stays, Darren Bender stays. If he doesn't stay, I mean, you know, find another Moto2 guy, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of where I see it. Where's Darren Bender going to go? I mean, maybe he, well, he's not going to pick up the Aguirre's seat because that'll be reserved for one of the riders from uh, Talent Cups or perhaps somebody coming up from Moto3. But, I mean, returning back to the Bastianini-Martin thing, I think probably what Ducati are going to do now, given how up and down the form for both of those riders has been, I think it's going to be just a shootout now over the next three or four races once they come back after the summer break as to which one stays at Pramac or goes to Pramac and which one goes up to partner Banyai. I think that's really all that Ducati can do at this stage. Yeah. Uh, again, there's a lot of moving parts here that we still don't fully know or understand. There's clearly some stuff going on in the background because if you remember, Martin made that kind of barbed threat about finding another works ride uh, around yes, the did. Saxon Ring weekend. And so clearly there's quite a lot of politics and managerial talks going on behind the scenes, as you would expect. But it's going to be a bit of a yeah, slugging it out between him and Bastianini. So I don't suppose there's going to be many Christmas cards exchanged this coming uh, December. Nope. So my question or my thought is, I feel like there's some bombshell going to hit. Like this is all well two together for so far. Like I, I think there's some weird magical play out that's going to happen. Like something we're just not even suspecting right? Something so crazy, like Mir winds up on the factory Ducati or some, something to that innate. Now, I don't, mm. I'm not saying that that's even a remote possibility. I honestly believe he's going to HRC, but you feel like the way we see it is not anywhere close right now. I just have that feeling that there's some bombshell going to happen. Well, a bombshell that might yet happen is regarding Mark Marquez, you know, and whether or not this surgery is going to fix the problem because there was quite a long open letter to the fans that came out today. Right, I saw that. Which is on the MotoGP website for people to have a look at. It's quite a long, detailed piece of work, actually. But um, effectively, what he's saying is it's a very much a wait and see from his point. And he does admit that midway through last year, he was looking down the possibility of having to stop altogether, given how bad that arm and or shoulder arm injury was. 
I mean, it sounds as if the surgery has been successful, right? But you don't know yes. until, you know, he's further into his rehab and back on a bike again and one thing and another. So, I mean, maybe if it hasn't gone to plan, maybe he would make a bombshell decision like that in his own interest, as we've talked about over recent episodes, you know, hopefully riders start to look out for themselves a bit more than they might have done in the past. So I guess that could be something, but I'd be very doubtful that that would happen. So, but it's that kind of a season, Jim, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's been so many big shocks this year, mostly prompted by Suzuki's out of the blue decision. Yeah, that's Yeah, who knows? It's going to be interesting to see what happens once they come back in, what, four and a half weeks or so. Something like that, yep. So in a bit of good feeling news, Goodwood is going on, the Goodwood Festival of Speed, which is, how do you say it, uh, historic uh, yeah. motor car, motor racing, historic race cars, uh, historic hill climb, historic motorcycle events going on there as well. Pertaining to MotoGP, Wayne Rainey. Rainey was a 90, 91 and 92 world champion of 500 GP. San Marino tragically crashed chasing Schwantz in 1993. Um, went into the gravel trap that used to be plowed furrows and wound up sticking his head into the, fat, into the furrow, broke Rainey's back and paralyzed him from the waist down. You may also know Wayne as being the guy who's the head of Moto America here in the United States. He was reunited with his 90, he with his YZR 500. I think it was a 93 version of the bike. I'm okay. not exactly sure that he, he did take a lap of the Goodwood circuit, which was quite heartwarming to see. Yeah, and obviously that bike was quite heavily modified to allow him to get on it. I I think, people correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's probably the first time he's, well, certainly slung a leg over that particular bike because he he made a very kind of, as only he would be able to do and allowed to do, but he made a kind of a quip that he, in terms of the ride up the hill at Goodwood, he hoped he did a better job on it this time than the last time he rode the bike. So, which I thought was a bit of dark humour, but fair play to him for that. So yeah, go and seek that one out on YouTube and various channels that are available to watch a legend back reunited with that uh, beautiful two-stroke bike I, I wasn't there would have been nice to have gone and to have smelled that two-stroke smoke uh not necessarily doing great things for the environment but uh, anyway for petrol heads like us that's um, manna from heaven <laughs> mm, that it is um that's everything from my side for news rich i think you said you had one thing for yeah USB? okay a very exciting development from a British fan's point of view, and that's to say that Rory Skinner, which is a name that will be very familiar to, well, certainly to British fans and anybody that follows British Superbike. So Rory is a, a serial winner in the lower classes. He's been riding for the last two years for the FS3 Kawasaki team in British Superbikes. He has been touted for a little while to be Moto2 bound, although nothing permanent arranged on that. But he is going to be wildcarding at Silverstone and then the Red Bull Ring in Austria, which is the next two rounds once they come back from the summer break, riding on the American racing team in Moto2. Now, as I was discussing with Jim just before we started recording, I don't believe that's as a replacement to either Cam Bobier or Sean Dylan Kelly. So I can only assume, it's not very clear from the press releases, but I can only assume they're going to run a third bike for him. So obviously being at Silverstone, that's going to be very exciting for the British fans. All being well, I'll be in the stands for that weekend as well. So, yeah, that's a great bit of news. And I did bump into Rory at Silverstone at the pre-season BSB test back in April. And he said he'd be quite happy to come on and have a chat with us at some stage. So I'm busy uh, stalking him online at the moment to see if we can get that set up, uh, particularly now in view of the fact that that segues very nicely into our bias towards MotoGP and what his feelings are going into Silverstone. So hopefully that's something we might be able to arrange before the Silverstone round happens, but hold that thought and watch this space. Sure. 
So let's get into the racing that happened at the Cathedral Speed of Assen this week. Yeah. So let's start out with uh, Moto3. Uh, the only news I've got here kind of qualifying was Hogardo was going to get a long lap penalty because of the crashing under yellow flags in, I think, the FP3 session. That was scary. He fell at the last chicane, you know, the final chicane, the one that everybody loves because all the passing happens there before the start finish. Yep. And he almost clipped the doctor, the doctor, hay bale, and the other rider that was there. It was very close. So definitely deserve it of a long lap penalty to begin with that. Well, Jim, I've got to ask yes. you, long lap penalty. I mean, for that oh, infringement, geez. I mean, I thought that was, again, let's be clear, everybody that's listening, MotoGP race stewards decisions are front and center in just about every race meeting that we talk about now and this episode is no exception but again that is a staggeringly lenient i agree penalty i mean miller did Look. it at the last race so it is consistent in that sense but crashing under yellows when there's marshals and riders in the gravel is totally unacceptable i mean what's the point of having a yellow flag i don't know that whole scenario sort of continues on in moto into the second part of qualifying for me at least is that Sasaki uh, goes to pole, and I don't know how he did it because there was yellow sectors everywhere. How did he not ride through a yellow sector faster than what he was supposed to? Yeah. I mean, I'm not privy to the data off the bikes and where things are. I don't, I'm not a part of that. But you can't have three of four sectors yellow, and you tell me he's suddenly on pole. I think we can sort of just generally conclude across all classes now that when it comes to rules, enforcement of the rules, we're in a situation of complete anarchy and confusion at the moment. And this is obviously something we're going to talk about. Uh, right. a little bit later on i have for the five weeks that we have off i have the if jim is stewart list this is how jim runs moto gp with an iron fist already worked out it's Good. a long rant people and i'm not going to do it here we'll no. save it for the week for the five weeks off we're on the clock tonight so we're going to try and make this a little bit shorter and, and just as a quick <laughs> interlude apologies to the listeners i had some problems last week both with regards to being away and then some pc problems which meant that the saxon ring episode went out on monday uh, was it monday or tuesday so sorry about that just things got in the way <laughs> if we move into the race it was interesting that Suzuki got a whole shot. He was followed by his Japanese compadre. But the story becomes Govera leading the race. No one can get by Govera. For the longest time in this race, Govera leads the, the race. I mean, no one even passes him. No one's close. But I tell you, the race between Munoz, Suzuki, Zasaki, Masia, Fernandez, and Fagia is pick whichever one you want. Put them at whatever position you want at whatever turn that you want. Yeah. Which amazingly given the fact that all these guys were cutting each other up guvara could never get away so it's like usually if these guys start cutting each other up in the back the guy who's out front starts to get away from the pack but in this case it didn't happen the real action starts somewhere around with like 10 to go we realize that mcphee is the only guy to come from that second group to get to the front group and john was on a tear john was on the move so now he had joined the front group we then lose Fagia out of this front battle because him and Munoz go after each other. And Munoz goes underneath uh, Fagia at two, pushes him wide. Fagia goes off of the curbs. He then is riding on the green paint and goes to get back on the track. And you can tell visually from the cameras that the curb is about, what would you say, three inches mm. maybe taller yeah. than the area that Fagia is riding in. And Fagia tries to leap across that. He doesn't quite get the angle right. And what happens? The rear tire skips out on him, and Fazia flips himself to the moon on a high side. Fazia's race is in it. That's four, three DNFs in four races, I think. Something yeah. close to that for Fazia. Yeah. 
So Foggy is out of this race now. Munoz winds up going off track at turn three. That takes him out of the beginning of the pack. So Munoz is now done. Interestingly, let's go back to Munoz. Should Munoz have gotten a long lap penalty for pushing Foggy off the track? I thought it was a fair move, to be honest with right. you. I mean, he, he didn't go off track. You know, him and Fodger, okay, they were slugging it out into that turn. Fodger bailed. And the only reason Fodger fell off wasn't anything to do with Munoz directly, uh, other than the fact that they were battling for that position. And as you say, Jim, Fodger just, let's be kind of bad, he just misjudged the re-entry in terms of that curve, which was obviously viciously high. And he just kind of crossed it up a bit midair and came down and off he went. So, uh, I mean, that guy is not going to be buying any lottery tickets this year because, I mean, no. he just doesn't have any luck. So, and he's way out of the championship now, I think. I think it's over for Fodger in that case. I mean, Munoz is one of the guys I was going to come to in terms of my general couple of points about the Moto3 race, but I personally thought it was a fair move in that particular instance. Yep, I'd agree too. That was definitely a fair game as well. Munoz would then run off. I think I said that. We get down to sort of like that the last lap where everything kind of comes down to it. And finally, the guys sort of gang up on Guevara and they push him down all the way down what have to be to fourth or whatever. We're starting to come back from the far side of the track up towards the Tidmouth chicane there at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's the last turn before the chicane. It's that fast sweeping um, left-hander that leads you into it. So then Munoz has now caught, who had caught back up, folds the front and knocks Masia off. So they both go flying off. Buvara, who was behind, then kind of tucks in and closes that corner off tighter, which causes McPhee to have to grab the front brake a little bit harder. McPhee hits the ground and he's down. So in that turn, we get three of the guys in front are gone from contention at all. So it becomes a race between Sasaki and Suzuki. Sasaki had hit the elbows out. He was totally destined to win this race. It was hardcore all the way. Sasaki would win the race because Guevara and Garcia would both get Suzuki going into the final Tidmouth chicane. So Suzuki would go from being second all the way to fourth. Garcia, who spent the majority of the race in eighth place, gets a podium to keep his championship going just by ever so little. Yeah. And Guevara, who was led the whole thing, got robbed by getting beaten by Sasaki on the last lap. It's an incredible Moto3 race. Uh, it's a Moto3 race. It all comes down to the last race, last quarter. Brilliant, brilliant Moto3 race. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway is much the same as yours, really. Well, two things, really, is Sasaki, who, let's not forget, is still recovering from that collarbone, that nasty, nasty crash that he had in Mugello practice. So first win and, you know, a masterclass, really, in overtaking that, that distrubin, that really, really fast, high-commitment left-handed before the Timur chicane, as you say. He pulled off numerous moves at that corner through the race. And he's come so close, particularly over the course of this season. I'm trying to I was trying to remember who he which team he was in last year. Was he in the Tech 3 team last year? Yes. Anyway, doesn't matter. But he's he's been sort of a front runner there or thereabouts, but certainly landing in the Sterile Garda Max racing squad this year. He's certainly found his feet and another year, another year of maturity and experience. He's looked you know, the real deal this year. And I was just praying that he was going to get the win as much as we like Gravara and all the other guys as well. And as you say, Jim, it was a great race by Gravara, but oddly, as you say, he just couldn't get away like he did at the Saxon ring this yeah. time around. But I was just happy to see Sasaki get the win and he fully deserved it because as I say, he was pulling off some meteoric passes at a place which is sketchy to say the least. So in fourth was Suzuki, then Artigas, Holgardo after his long lap penalty, 
Nepa, Yamanaka, and Anchi was ninth and Toba 10th. So there's your top 10 in, in that Moto 3. Let's talk about Anchi real quick. He was nowhere all weekend after looking fantastic the previous weekends. Absolutely nowhere. The dead, yeah. Well, it leads on to my second point, really. And I can only think Anchi's are getting a little bit worried because over his shoulder, he's now seeing this Munoz kid suddenly mm-hmm. turning up and taking over his mantle as the craziest guy on track. Yeah. So maybe Anchi's just a little bit uh, sideswiped by the fact that somebody's a little bit crazier than he is all of a sudden because there's been a lot of, let's say, social media, which is always a bit of a dodgy place to start to try and understand and gauge people's true feelings. But there's been quite a lot of vitriol aimed towards Munoz for his antics during that race in particular. And the um, the commentators on the Dorna feed, at least, have keep making this comment about how he has a reputation for elbows out and taking no prisoners and stuff. Bear in mind, I think he's only 16 or certainly around about that Yeah, he age. just turned 16 because he couldn't race at the beginning of the season because he wasn't 16 yet. So right. this is only, what, his fourth weekend yeah. on the world stage, I think? Fourth and I mean, fifth. let's be honest, I mean, he's, despite the rough edges, a new star is born. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. Mm-hmm. And and an actual fact on the now was it the penultimate or the last lap where he went down with Masia? Was it the last lap, Jim? I think it probably the last was. lap. He goes down with he he puts Masia down at the very last lap. Uh, you know, a lot of people sort of blaming him and kind of being quite unkind about him. But I have to say, just slightly in his defence, that Masia did a massive weave coming into that corner. Maybe that just disturbed his entry to the corner. I don't know. I mean, it's a split second thing, isn't it? But he's another of these riders, much like Onchu, where massive potential, but just needs a team around him that just helps to just calm him down a little bit, as much as you can a barely 16-year-old then. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, file off those rough edges a little bit, because quite clearly he is massively fast. So it's great to have another guy like that suddenly emerge. And let's be honest... From the team's point of view, a team that is not used to running at the front. Yeah, I am, have no problem with the way he rides. I think he's just aggressive. Yeah, it's and Moto3. Just, it's what it takes to go fast and to win. Yeah. I think there is a bit of respect that he gives people, but the passes I've seen are hard but fair. Hey, you left a little bit open. I'm going there. That's just how it is. That's kind of like that what makes a champion a champion kind of a thing. Yeah. Because I can't believe that, a, which one's the youngest one, Adrian Fernandez? Is yep. going to have that factory seat at KTM next year. Munoz will move there. Mm. Oh, he's moving. He's, he's, he's got to be on a, there isn't really a factory bike, but let's face it. That is a KTM run factory squad under the IO banner. Right. Yeah. But we think of it as the factory because it's Red Bull KTM IO. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's going there. Well, I would imagine there's a stampede of people at the moment in that Moto3 pit lane trying to get his signature on a piece yeah, of paper. Yeah, but I can't believe that pit buyer didn't beat everybody to him. You would figure, yeah. But, I mean, people moaning and groaning about potential on-track antics. He didn't get a penalty. Nope. So, you know, and compared to some other people during the weekend that did, again, bit of an eye-raiser, really, in terms of where the decisions are coming from. But, yeah, again, we're coming to that. Oh, yeah. So, quickly, I think we should look at the championship results for this one after the race just so we can figure out where everybody is amazingly garcia still holds his points lead in the championship he does so by i believe it's a mere three points over his teammate guevara look guevara is going to probably wind up taking the lead in this championship here at some point after the break because garcia has not put together the rides that he's had early on in the season guevara has been in the zone and he is you know, 17 and looking spectacular right now Fazia is now on 115 points. That puts him a whopping 64 points behind the front two Gas Gas Twins. That's just not going to 
No, uh, not going to happen. And the Honda is not the bike that it was last year or the bike or Honda is the bike that was last year. And the KTM has just been that much better. Take your pick on that one. Yeah. Uh, Sasaki then becomes the fourth man in the championship, followed by Masia, Anchu, Suzuki, Minio, Tatai, and Artigas in the top 10. That's Moto3. Unless we have anything else we've missed, Rich. Great race as usual with Moto3. Yeah, that's everything I have to say, Jim. Mm, there we go. All right, moving to Moto2 in this one. What we learned in Moto2 qualifying is that Pedro Acosta broke his femur, his right femur, in three places. I think it might have been, well, it doesn't matter which one it was, doesn't does matter. it? But it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nasty bone to break. It's a two or three places broken, pinned Ouch. and surgically put back together again. So Acosta is out maybe back at the end of summer break. Hopefully I don't want him to come back too soon. I do not want a Mark Marquez style problem here. And he's not a championship contender, Jim, is he? So there's no yep. point rushing back. I mean, next year's when it, yeah. when it will or won't happen. There is no reason whatsoever. So second qualifying session, Vietti crashed, which, you know, we don't really think of Vietti being much of a faller, but he fell. Uh, Lowe's and Dixon were trying to come through at the end with absolutely no time left on the clock. But Dixon did take the pole far by Arenas, Lowe's, Agura, who had a really good qualifying session to be there in the second row, following then Lopez, uh, Navarro, and Roberts. Mm -hmm. In the race... Lowe's got nerfed out at the start, went way wide, and basically was at the back of the pack. I mean, dead, stonking, last for poor Sam Lowe's, a man who has no luck but bad luck, mm. it seems, the whole <laughs> way through. And it would get even worse as in a few laps later, Lowe's would fall off at sector three. I'm not sure what turn that was, but he was down in sector three. And that was Lowe's race, done deal. Meanwhile, at the front, it was a little bit, I don't want to say crazy here at the beginning between Dixon, Lopez, and Arenas. They all sort of started to trade who was going to be in front. And it became a very Moto 3 esque Moto 2 race because everybody was just kind of jostling around for position. Ayagura had two huge, huge out of the seat moments. I think the same corner, mm. maybe turn four, four, five, but he saved each and every one of them. But it put Ayagura way down the list, like I think almost 10th or 11th because. Only a few laps in, it was Lopez, Dixon, and Schroeder, Fernandez, and Arenas. And then you had to go all the way back to looking at Cambobia in eighth. Roberts was ninth for the American contingent. Vietti was 10th, and Ayagura was even farther back than that because of his problems. I spent the next part of this race watching where Cam was because Cam came from that second group, went through that group pretty quickly, was turning fast lap after fast lap after fast lap of the race and caught the guys that were out front. So again, I had to pull the flag out of the drawer and get it prepared because I thought, here we go, people, we're going to wind up having at least an American on the podium before all that, but we have to see what happens as we, as we go on. So Cam's going forwards, a girl's going backwards <laughs> at this point. And you got to almost think like, I, I wasn't sure what to think because I'm like, is a girl really going to be able to come back through the pack or not? Like I couldn't figure out if like the tire was either gone or he chose too hard a tire. So he didn't have any grip that was going to come good later. I didn't catch who was on what. I know everybody was on the same front tire in Moto2, but I don't remember who was on what on the rears, but that doesn't matter because Schroeder had come to the front and promptly fell off and tucked it right. You know, threw that thing down the road, which is insane. So that was turn five. I think more people fell off at the first gear turn five than anywhere else on the track. Yeah. 
and I don't know if it's because I knew one thing from my racing experience, turns like that require patience. You think you are going so slow, but you are not going slow enough for what you're attempting to try to do with the motorcycle and bad things happen because you've become unpatient. I mean, I think we can kind of relate to this in a way if you've been on the dual carriageways over in your part of the woods, Rich, or the interstate system here, Autobahn in Germany. If you're traveling at a high rate of speed for a long time and you get off the interstate, everything seems to be slow because 45 now doesn't feel like 45 It because it feels really slow yeah. because you've been doing 80 miles an hour or whatever on the interstate here. And a turn like that sort of invites you to go in and try and grab yeah. a bit of time, which isn't really there. Because I'm sure that turn used to be more banked than it looks now, back in the olden days with the old sort of longer version of the track. Maybe it is still quite heavily banked, but I don't didn't know. used to see people tucking the front there quite so often. But I mean, times move on and tires change and one thing and another. And the bikes are much quicker now as well. Yep. I think also there's a variation of lines. So I'm not so sure that all the rubber gets laid down where everybody wants to run. True. It's one of those things where I believe you've got to be really millimeter perfect to get through there correctly each time. It takes a bit of patience. Let's not forget that Friday was a complete washout as well. So the track was a bit greener. I mean, okay, they had dry running on Saturday, but it probably wasn't as rubbered in as they might normally have expected it to be. Yep. Arenas led for quite some time after Schroeder had went down. And I'm thinking, well, Reynas might be on for a win because he's been getting better and better and better on the Moto2 bike. He's had that year. He's kind of settled in. He's making the moves when he needs to make the moves and whatnot. Lopez gave up the ghost because he wound up running around wide at turn one, just got in there too deep. And uh, basically then it was like, well, hey, here comes this guy named Augusto Fernandez who has had the hot hand. He at least had the hot hand in Saxon ring. Could he do the double? Don't know, but he definitely was going to do his best because he went to the front at that point in time. And he would put himself in front of Aranis, in front of Dixon. <laughs> Magically, by like five to go, Ayagura made his way back up the fourth. That fight by Ayagura to come back through was brilliant. He just elbows out and just came through everybody. That was a big moment, I thought, was Ayagura settled himself in, but the tire in maybe, or whatever it is that he needed. He just literally just basically, okay, calm yourself down, right at the ship, said, okay, put my head down. Let's go to work. Let's just chip away, chip away, chip away. And he did to get back up to the front four to go. Cam winds up on the low side of turn one. Poor Jim had to put the flag back, back in the box. Draw. Back in the draw for another week or back five in weeks in this case. <laughs> I was like, Oh, for five weeks now we got to, okay, well, you know, well, all right, let's move on here. But nobody would be able to touch Fernandez. Fernandez would go on to win the race. He would be followed home by Agura, who would go to second. Dixon got a well-deserved podium. Did he got that at the last bit, right? He kind of kept his powder dry. I thought it was a very mature race from Dixon because my sort of takeaway from the race in general was that the Aston Moto2 race was like a little microcosm of the 2022 Moto2 Championship in the sense that who the hell is going to win this thing? You know, who's (laughs) up, who's down? Very hard to sort of read the form, really. But Dixon, who was out front or certainly at the front of the front group in the early stages of the race, kind of dropped back a little bit and you thought, oh dear, what's happening? But I think he was actually keeping his powder dry a little bit, just with the last few laps in mind. Okay, Augusto Fernandez at that stage was a bit too far up the road. But I think with a lap or two to go, Dixon got past Arenas, who promptly crashed. I think on the last lap, Jim, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. again, uh, I, I think penultimate lap. I think penultimate, it was penultimate okay. lap at yeah. turn nine. I sort of quickly grabbed the races because I was away for my birthday weekend. So I watched them on Sunday night and didn't make comprehensive notes to be, uh, to be perfectly you honest. But, stable on Sunday night? Well, it was a struggle. <laughs> let's, let's leave it at that. But yeah, so Arenas, 
you know, had a great race, as you say. He's just coming on strong. I mean, it's given Dixon something to think about in that team, but ultimately would fall off, as you say, on the penultimate lap. But a very mature ride from Dixon and another podium, which is exactly what he needs just to sort of steady the ship. I mean, clearly as we're going to talk about in terms of championship positions in a moment. He's not in the Moto2 title fight this year, but you know we'll be angling to keep that seat at the very minimum. And these sorts of performances are what he needs to do now, just to steady things down, secure his ride for next year, and also give himself a confidence boost going into the next race, which is his home race, of course. Agreed. But lo and behold, who's fourth in all of this? There he is again. Yeti. Yeah. Yeti just shows up. <laughs> he just shows up there. Again, from a poor qualifying and crashing out, I think Vietti started the race in 18th and rode his way to fourth. We talk about champions rides. Was that a championship ride? I don't know because it was very stealthy because there was so much else going on that you're really not paying attention to where Vietti was. But I will tell you this, Vietti set the fastest laps of the race and he set them at the very end of the race, which means he had pace. Does that mean he would have won if he would have started on the first two rows? Maybe, maybe not. Don't know if some butts, candy nuts makes a great Christmas for everybody, right, Rich? Yeah, as you like to say. I mean, we've seen this from Vietti, I think most famously at Le Mans this year, where he was nowhere for most of the race and then suddenly started setting best laps towards the end. And the team must be pulling their hair out yeah. at this point. Well, in, in fact, Vietti must be pulling his copious Italian coiffured haircut as well, because it's hard to understand, really, his form during a race has really sort of gone away over the course of the last four or five rounds. And yeah. I mean, fourth on paper is a great result for him, but it was kind of more due to attrition up front, really, than him really finding his way through, although he was turning fast up towards the end. He was not that far behind the lead group when the checkered flag came out. You know, if this race runs three more laps, Vietti's on the podium somewhere, given the pace that he had given. It's like, I, right, but I mean, who had anything left? I mean, I, I don't think he had anything for Fernandez. No. I agree. It was a half a second behind. And then Dixon was another 10th. And then another half a 10th behind was Vietti. So he was close to Dixon. I think one more lap he might have gotten, Jake. But, mm. eh, you know, Who that's knows? racing, right? We don't know. But uh, Bo Ben Schneider doing the home crowd crowd with a fifth place. Then it was Lopez, Arbolino, Roberts, top American. Then Gonzalez and Salak being the top 10. If we then look at the championship in Moto2, things are things are a little interesting here. <laughs> uh, how do I put this? Um, Vietti's got 146 points. Fernandez has 146 points. Oh, and that kid, Agura, he's got 145 points. So the top three are within one point. Yeah, crazy. At the halfway break. Well, actually, over halfway, right? We're on round 11 of 20. So Yeah, but crazy in a good way. Poor Kinnett, he's on 116, which leaves him 30 behind. I don't know if Kinnett can get rid of the nosebleeds that he's had because he, he had to withdraw. Yeah, I mean, he had to withdraw from the weekend. We didn't mention that. I think we should have. No, we should have. Oh, it was a little bit of an oversight. But, I mean, bizarre, actually, because he raced in the Saxon ring, mm-hmm. you know, just a few days after this accident where he caught that injury. And I don't know. Well, obviously, things haven't got better or maybe they've even got a bit worse yeah. in that following week. But didn't Simon say, say something to the effect that every time Kanet came into the pits this weekend at Aston, he was literally had blood all down, you know, over his mouth, yeah. his chin, front of his leathers. I mean, that's, I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, that, he, in fact, there's Jim, something else going on. <laughs> well, I think we mentioned it on the last show. Obviously, he had that broken nose and throughout the Saxon ring weekend was whenever he was in the pits, all you could see was like tissue stuffed up his nose, trying to sort of soak things up, which is quite unpleasant. And he crashed, I think, in FP3 at Saxon Rim. 
as I understand it, because it was breaking into turn one, which is quite a heavy braking area. And again, his nose just gushed out and he, it caused him to crash. So again, you get into this whole debate about whether he should have been past fit to race in either of those rounds. But clearly for him to pull out on health grounds at Assen meant things were pretty bad because he's a tough little cookie. Yeah, he is. Um, is, he, is he there thereabouts for the championship? I don't know. I won't count him out, but... You know, 29, 30 seen... points, whatever it is. I mean, it's still... You know, obviously he's got five weeks to recover now, mm-hmm. so he's going to be back fully fit, you'd say, you know, I'd when they get so. back to Silverstone. So he's very much in the game, I would very say. Very much in the game, I think. Yep. After Kenneth, it's Arbolino, Robert, Schroeder, Dixon, Acosta, and Shomcat Chandra being the man in 10th. So this Moto 2 season has been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I think has really made it that way, to be honest with you. Like I said, remember last year we were talking, I was like, hey, if this kid, if, if you know, we we're talking about Aguro, like if you, if you didn't, no, Acosta was a rookie too in like the Moto 3 class. You would be fascinated by how good Agura was. And he's proven that he's pretty damn good on the bigger bike. Mm. In fact, you know, you almost want to say he's actually doing it better than Acosta, right? Well, look at the points table. Agreed, you know. But then again, you know, I think there's the weight of expectation, I think, is much greater on Acosta. I mean, look how many people, including us, sat there and said, well, this kid's going to run off with a Moto 2 title. Yeah. No, guilty as charged. Didn't happen, isn't happening, right? Now, is he going to be the odds-end favorite for next year? Yep. Am I picking him for next year's setup? Yep. Is it going to be a walk in the park? Mm, Probably, (laughs) because, you know, Acosta's that good, but there's, you know, there's some incredible talent that's going to be there as well. So really looking forward to these last uh, nine races to see what happens here. I want to see how Agura goes in the Asia races, right? So I'll call it home turf, you know, if you will. Yeah. We'll see what happens. My only real sort of takeaway is that, if I was going to be a betting man heading into this, let's call it nominally the second half of the season. Well, it's more of a question, I suppose, to everybody in you, Jim. Is Augusto Fernandez now starting to just kind of look like the guy who actually is likely to go ahead and take this championship? Oh, wow. You have to say that based in consistency, Fernandez is probably going to win the championship. Is he as talented as Vietti? Ooh, debatable question. Has Celestino Vietti thrown things away that he probably shouldn't have? Yeah, <laughs> not going to deny that one. Uh, old racing age to finish first, first you must finish comes into play here. Mm. Vietti just does not seem to have the consistency that Fernandez has or is riding with. Now, you give him five weeks and you come back fresh again. I mean, we do not know everything about these guys. Is Vietti hiding a small little nagging injury that causes him to have a small problem? You know, does he have a crack in his one of his fingers and he can't break? You know, it hurts with break break. We we don't know. They're not mm, telling us. I'm speculating here that maybe there's something that's hitting in there. You you see it in other professional sports, right? Like you know, Stanley Cup playoffs here in the U.S. for the Cup. A lot of guys playing hurt, but they don't say they're hurt, but you know that they're hurt. We have no way of knowing if he is. I'm just throwing something out there that maybe this is why he's having some inconsistencies yeah but he was inconsistent in moto three though too if i remember correctly he was was, i mean he never really showed the kind of form that you know his earlier career before he got into moto three or the full moto three championship at grand prix level at least didn't really quite follow through on all the hope and expectation and he's kind of hinted at it this season in moto two and certainly did so towards the end of last year as well but yeah i'll form really but as we've said numerous times in recent episodes motor two is the championship that nobody is willing to sort of take by the scruff of the neck and really go with but but my feeling at the moment is that fernandez is starting to look like the more polished of the sort of the three or four at the front of the championship table but it's so well i mean to say it's close is ridiculous because i mean there's nothing between them 
I will give you that Fernandez is looking probably the more polished of everybody that's there. But in a push come to shove situation, I think I'd take Agura. Well, Agura certainly has a track record this year because, well, yeah, I mean, he he's gone rides backwards back. so much and then rode forward he rides so to the much. front. Yeah, no, he does. Whereas Augusto Fernandez so far this year has either been very, very good or AWOL. Agreed. And that's obviously the thing that he has to address. Whereas Agura, you know, is just going to maybe not practice and qualify so well, but will be there at the end of the race. So, yeah, I can't wait to see what happens in the last nine rounds. Agreed. Uh, MotoGP time? I think so. This is a good okay. one. Uh, let's see. Something from qualifying. Oh, uh, Bastianini's bike quit at the end of pit lane because he was in the first qualifying session. And then you get Bastianini doing the pit lane dash in full kit back to there. <laughs> and how about a shout out just to the crew? Because I believe that bike was on a wet setting because they ripped out the fork springs and everything else on that bike to get it to be ready to take on dry settings. And they did it in about five minutes. So yeah, incredible. Hands off to the Grassini team and their techs. They deserve applause for that. That was pretty special. And to be fair, yes, I've go just got to say, Jim, just a little bit of my sake British humor. You know, it's good to see that the Grassini team are good at quick bike repairs because Alex Marcus is going there next year. <laughs> Oh, that's like dark humor almost. Oh, it's true. They, like all good humor, there's a hint of truth in every bit of it. Miller was down at turn five and Miller then lost a foot peg because of that. So he spoiled Alicia Spargaro's lap and he spoiled Maverick Vinales's lap. Now Vinales is actually in the second session. I think we should point that out. Mm. It looks like things are coming good here on the Saprilia. Despite what we know, he's got another contract. And we said there's no way he was going to be on that bike next year. Mm. Obviously, we're no, we know nothing about the talent that these guys have. Egg on the face. Yep. Okay, Moving yeah. On. Well, what I'm used to it. It's kind of permanently <laughs> there on mine. So that ruined Alasia's lap. He ruined both Aprilia's laps, is what it comes down to, right? Okay, put that way. Miller being the guy that he was, he did go right to Vinales afterwards. They're chummy friends. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Miller and Vinales. Said, hey, man, you know, I'm sorry. I saw you coming. I couldn't really get out of the way. I had no foot peg to push the bike the other way. So it wound up with just Benyaya being on pole. Again, Benyaya had been quick, and there was probably no way that he wasn't going to be on pole, but he was. Quattararo is showing us that, again, the Yamaha is apparently like the Honda. There's only one guy on the planet who can ride it, and it happens to be Fabio Quattararo. Because, quite honestly, he had that amazing save where the foot was off and over the seat, and he looked like, okay, kind of got stuck, and he just brought it all back. But again, that was the turn five. Kind of got to put turn five into your brains here, people, because weird things seem to happen at turn five. <laughs> it's called foreshadowing. They do that in books and stuff. And uh, Aleish would wind up being in the second row. And then, you know, Miller had his spot, but Miller was going to wind up with problems as well, right? He would eventually get a long lap penalty because of what he did to the Aprilias for riding slow on the track. I don't know where Miller was with his mind on this one. If the foot peg was gone park it because there was not enough time to get back and even once he did get back it was over it, i'm going to use the word selfish here of miller to ride around like he did because he wasn't going to get back in time to get a foot peg put on and go out and get another lap anyway i think the key question though jimmy i mean i don't know this because i didn't see qualifying because i was away again but the question in my mind is when did the foot peg come off i mean if it had come off like three turns earlier and he was still dawdling around on the racing line and impeding people that's one thing if it had literally sort of just come off and he was still sort of trying to figure out what to do then perhaps in that context, the long lap penalty might have been a bit harsh. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, long lap penalties don't really appear to be much of a penalty in any of the classes these days anyway. So, as I've said before. Yeah. All right. We would go We would go into the race. Vinaya would get out to a whole shot. Aleish had the start of a lifetime 
to get to be the second. And then it was Quattro. Quattro kind of got his elbows out on him and got by and had got into second. But then turn five rears its ugly head and Quattro crashes the bike, runs the leash off the track. Now, he did not crash into a leash. Let's be very clear about this, okay? A leash went off track to avoid Quattro and the bike. This then puts a leash, I think, all the way back down to somewhere around 15th. Mm, 16th, okay. I think it was, but anyway, where I mean, it's somewhere way back, way there. back, way okay, back. It's not even in the, it's like outside of the points. Now, Leish had been faster in the week because in, I think, the final free practice three, he was the quickest guy. Um, you know, we don't know what they're, what the guys are doing in those things, but you know, he was at or near the top of all the practice sessions, very quick in qualifying, had his fast run where he had fast sectors, personal best sectors ruined by Miller, the yellow sector way, flag waving thing. Ugh. We could go on and on about that, but we'll curtail that for the break of five weeks. <laughs> so it becomes a race of where is Aleish going to wind up finishing? But then the oddity happens here. Quattro sort of remounts, slowly makes his way back to the pits. Now, what I can't remember, and help me out here, Rich, if you can, did Quattro remount and then go directly to the pits, or did Quattro make a lap and then go to the pits? I think yes. he did a lap. I'm sure and then that came that's what happened. Yeah. Because there was something to the effect of something was wrong or he did not like something on the motorcycle. Because when he came into the pits, they had a conversation and he seemed to not be happy with what was going on. I couldn't read from his body language or, or anything that he was doing. He was definitely not happy, but I don't know what he was happy about. Maybe the Yamaha guys weren't able to actually determine it that quickly of what may or potentially could be wrong, but they crank the bike back up and send Fabio back out again. Okay. Hmm. And he's kind of shaking his head as he goes back down pit lane. Exactly. I mean, these bikes are so complicated. He definitely did do at least one lap before he came into the pits. Cause I remember the commentators saying how many seconds per lap slower he was and that he was going further and further back. Right. And he had lost one of the front wings on the bike as well, which at a fast track like Assen is going to have a huge impact on the handling of the bike. Let's be honest, because you have massive downforce on one side and none on the other. Didn't Mir run a bike like that a year ago at Assen? One wing was off because it got pinched the chicane and it got knocked off. Somebody did. I'll tell you who it was. Well, certainly in terms of a recent one, Brad Binder had a clash. I can't remember who he clashed with at Le Mans this year on the first lap and lost a wing and was after the race. I mean, typically Brad Binder just sort of toughed it out and turned out a result, but commented after the race how unrideable the bike was given the disparity mm. in the downforce on the front of the bike. So, you know, I was going to say that the MotoGP bikes are so complicated now that perhaps Fabio was feeling something else. And I think the suggestion is that a sensor got damaged a little bit like happened to Pedroza back at Aragon all those years ago when Marquez ran into the back of him. The rear wheel speed sensor got clipped Correct. And so the bike didn't know if it was spinning or not. And what happened? He had a massive high side. And that is actually what would happen to Fabio, as we're going to talk about. We're going to go right We're speculating if that is what the cause of the crash was. So so let's be clear. Let's be clear. Quattro goes back out. Yeah. Quattro doesn't really want to go back out, but he goes back out and then promptly high sides himself. Yeah. Coming out of five again, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Again, turn five is infamous here now. I kind of throw this in there. Gary Shavit. Longtime listener, friend of the show, great guy, postulated to us like, well, why the hell did they ever send you back out again? I really couldn't figure out a reason why. No. I could not. Now, Lynn did propose a situation that was, hey, look, if he had gone out with the threat of rain, if he was riding and they stopped and they had to change bikes because it got to the other bike, 
or if there was something that caused the red flag, he could have restarted at the end of it and potentially Yamaha could have fixed the bike during the red flag situation. It's plausible. I don't mm. know if that was in Yamaha's mind or not. You had a 36 point lead, I think, coming into this championship and to this, uh, to at least this round. And then you send, you send your guy out who is the only guy who can ride a Yamaha fast against a horde of Ducatis and he crashes it again. Mm. Whether it's a sensor failure, whether it's tires that didn't work, whether it's tire pressures that got cold because of the slow ride into the pits, slow ride back out of the pits, I do not know. But it is interesting about what they were thinking at this point. It was a kind of hero or zero kind of call, wasn't it, I suppose, and didn't turn out right. I mean, I can't remember at this particular moment when they sent Fabio back out. I think that was in advance of the rain flags starting to get waved because there was this little bit of drizzle. Yeah. I don't know where that was. I, I'm almost positive that the rain flags did not. Yes, I got it here in my notes. I actually put this down. Surprising. <laughs> Quattro actually fell off with 14 laps left in the race. And it was at 10 laps to go that rain flags appeared. Okay. So maybe Yamaha were just hedging their bets. and Because you can sometimes I, feel it in the air. You know, I think so, yeah. Anybody that's been to Assen more than once will know that it can rain at literally any moment. I mean, it's that kind of a place. So... I don't know. As I say, I'm not going to criticise them for sending him out, although clearly Fabio was not happy to be sent back out because, of course, he's the guy that knows how the bike feels and clearly he felt it wasn't rideable at that stage. But, yeah, OK, if they thought it was going to be potentially rain within a lap or two, then he could have changed the bike and he'd be back in the game, potentially. Mm-hmm. So I can't, you can't really criticise them for that. But at the end of the day, Fabio's the rider. He could have just said, no, it's too damaged. I'm not riding anymore. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. I, I want to know who made the call. If it was Lynn Jarvis, I have immense. Okay, I cool. am displeased. I am displeased with Lynn Jarvis. <laughs> okay, I have not been. I Lynn Jarvis has not been on my Christmas card list since he disposed of Ben Spees after he had motorcycles. After Ben had motorcycles that fell apart. So okay, fair enough. Rant over. Moving, fair, fair moving on. <laughs> so let's kind of recap where we are after all of this has kind of gone crazy. Ben Yaya was running away with this. He was in command, in control. The only time he slowed down was when the rain flags came out. Bezeki was at second, was riding very well to be in second. Martin suffered the most from the idea of the rain flags being waved as he slowed down more than anybody, which allowed Vinales to get to and then pass Martin. And the question then become, where in the world, who's going to gamble here? Now, as a reference point, Alesha was eighth. With 10 laps left, the question was going to be, who is going to gamble in this? Right. Because it, it, were you going to change your bike because you thought it was going to rain worse? Were you going to Brad Bender it and ride it home on slicks? <laughs> I don't know what anybody was going to do. Things just seemed like it was raining, but it wasn't raining hard enough. Benyaya picked the pace back up because he obviously didn't care. Benyaya went on to cruise to the victory. Bezeki would slide on in there for a second. Vinales would take a podium, his first podium on the Aprilia. Yeah. Proving that more than one person can ride the Aprilia apparently quickly. So that's a good reference point for RNF, right? Because mm. they have it next year. Then Aleish had patiently moved up from eighth. He had moved himself still with five to go. He was still one, two, three. He was seventh by the time we got to five to go. And in those final five laps, he got himself into position so that on the last lap, last chicane, Aleish would get by both Brad Bender. At the, the pass was the same. How can I put this? He passed them both at the final chicane. He outbroke both of those guys. And you know Miller is a terror on the brakes. And Aleish went by both of them an incredible fourth. Now, how good did Aleish sleep knowing he gave up nine points in 
Yeah, I knew you were going to mention that. <laughs> I'm going to be on this all year because I yeah. have this fear that Alicia is going to lose this title by seven points. Yeah. I'm sorry that I have this fear. That is my fear. I have nothing against Quattro people. Please, I do, I do not need hate me. I think Quattro is amazing. He is the king of the class right now. There's nobody who can touch him. But gosh darn it, if you want a feel-good story, man, you've got to give it to Alesh, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a stunning ride, and he was turning fast lap after fast lap in that last third of the race as well. So, I mean, I didn't think he was going to get as far as fourth, I must admit. I didn't think he was. I didn't think he, I, I thought maybe points, 10th or something would be about it. It wasn't attrition. It wasn't like everybody in front of him started falling off. No, I mean, remarkably, few people went out of the race in actual fact. I, okay, I mean, at no stage did it get wet, you know, although there was a little bit of drizzle in the air, but I think it was just, you know, it was, it was minor. It was, an, it was like mental rain, as they say. So a few people did slow down, most notably, as you said, Jim, uh, Jorge Martin. But Aleish just went for it. But I, I can't remember if it was a seven or a nine or eight point loss that he suffered as a result of that faux pas in nine. Barcelona. But yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at the points table, where he'd be now if it hadn't mm. been <laughs> hadn't been for that. I mean, we've got I a couple of, or a couple of other things to talk about. But I suppose we ought to talk about the championship positions now. Because well, I mean, again... let's let's get everybody who were the top ten were just as a reference point. We yeah. know the first four. Bender would survive for fifth. Miller comes in behind him at sixth. Martin, with all the pain in his hand, slid down to seventh. And again. Bender and Miller are great in changeable conditions, so they were able to go by Martin, who was going to go back under the ninth, so maybe he, Martin was riding a little cautiously because a wreck would have not been a good thing to do when you know you're going to have surgery on your hand again. True. Yeah. Uh, Juan Mir with a terrible weekend on the Suzuki at eighth. Oliveira ninth. Renz and the other Suzuki would then be tenth. So that's that. And then if we look at the championship uh, after that race, we know Quattro is on the lead with 172, but Aleish is... On 151. Now that makes him exactly 21 points behind. And if you added nine points to that, you would have had him be 12 points or something. 12 points. Yeah. 12 Mm. points. So yeah. Would have, should have, could (laughs) have. Would have, should have, could have, people. I do think, though, that we're going to tracks that favor the Aprilia. Although I don't, I'm not not putting anything out of Quattro. Okay. I'm not saying Quattro is not going to be there or thereabouts. I just think we're getting to some tracks that are going to be harder for Quattararo to win on. Mm. I think like the race in Thailand is going to be difficult with the long straightaway. Uh, that's going to be a Ducati, Aprilia kind of a thing. Remember, the only place that's really the Yamaha's quick is on the last sector. So Quattararo is going to ride the wheels off of it around there to do it. Yeah. But Motegi, acceleration stops, starts. Maybe the Aprilia there. Aragon, I think Aleish is really good at Aragon has gone well at Aragon for years. So I think that one's maybe his to take in front of the home fans. Where the Yamaha still seems to struggle is long straights that are preceded by a slow turn. So right, the punch out, right. That's where kind of Red Bull Ring, Aragon, Motegi most definitely Mategi. are going to be a problem probably still. It seems that the Yamaha's top speed doesn't look that bad, does it? Nope, it just seems like it takes too long to get there. Yeah, exactly. So if it comes off a fast turn, like we saw in Barcelona, the Yamaha was actually passing other bikes that you would have, well, a little bit surprising to see, but I think the first, second gear corners onto a long straight are where they're going to continue to have some issues. So as you say, Jim, there's quite a few tracks coming up which are not going to favour him in that way. But to be honest with you, I mean, he has surprised us all really in the magic that he's weaving with that bike, which is in sharp relief with Morbidelli, Davizioso and... Darren Binder, although less so for Darren Binder because he's a rookie. And I think he's having a really good season on balance, really, Darren Binder. Yep. But anyway, in terms of the championship, you'd have to say at this point, 
I mean, did you mention who's in third? I mean, Zarco. Oh, no, no, there's not. Go ahead. Uh, Zarco, then Benyaya, Bastianini, Bender, Miller, Mir, Rins, and Oliveira's in the top 10. But Zarco's 58 behind in third yeah. place. So that sounds like mm-hmm. an insurmountable challenge to me. So I even think Benyaya's out of that because he's, uh, what, 56 points. 66. 60, sorry, 66 points shy. I think that's insurmountable because I don't think Quattro is going to make too many more mistakes. I think there's one more mulligan in there somewhere for Bark Quattro. And I think it depends on how hard Aleish pushes him. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm pretty sure somebody said it on the commentary, but I think they said that's Quattro's first race crash in 27 races or something, something like that. Something like mean, that, it's an yeah. amazing statistic. It's a great statistic. You know, he yeah. does not crash. Very Not often. now. <laughs> After that year where he chased Marquez and Marquez basically kind of played mind games with him, he sort of has got himself together. And then he kind of went to another crash phase there in 2020 because that was 19. 2020, because Mir, by consistency, would win the championship over Quattraro. And then that is when Quattraro wind up going to, how can I say, to the sports psychiatrist to strengthen his mental resolve, which seems to have worked wonders mm. for him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Actually, on that point, Jim, as well, a yes. shout out to Alicia Spargo, because when he got put into the gravel and was down to 15th, 16th or whatever it was, I had a sort of a slight expectation that he might unravel a little bit because we know how sort of animated he can be. Yes, yes. But he just got his head down and he just rode an absolutely unbelievably good race. I mean, he deserved the win, really, let's he did. be honest. But and maybe he would have had it if it hadn't been for that. Love to send him in Banyai going for it for the win. But it didn't happen, you know. Yeah, that, that's yeah. those are the dangers. That's why qualifying is important. Again, because I didn't do the sort of the lap by lap notation as you did. I, I've just got a couple of things I wanted to sort of pull up as themes yeah. and interesting things. So my first one is Aprilia, as in the team. Okay. And in particular, although I've been very critical of him, and certainly some of our listeners in terms of their feedback have been unbelievably critical of him, and for good reason. But Vinales. I didn't think he was going to retain the ride, as we said earlier on. So, I mean, it's a slap on the back of the head for us. But first podium, I just wonder you know, if the dynamic in that team might start to shift a little bit now, because if Vinales is going to be really on it, I'm interested to see how this plays out now, because although I think Vinales and Espargo are pretty good mates, but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, your teammates, the guy you got to beat. So it's going to be, again, as I always say, it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out and if Vinales has got the measure of that bike now is he the naturally more gifted faster rider of the two I think probably on balance yes I mean clearly he's not in the title fight this year so hopefully Vinales will do a little bit of assistance to Aleish as the year goes on if he can if the circumstances are such that he's able to contribute in that way but going into next year provided Aprilia don't go in some sort of odd tangential wrong direction with the bike development I see that as a fairly meaty confrontation between those two in that team next year, which is great for us. Also, I think next year, what strain does it put on Aprilia resource-wise for supplying the RNF team? Yeah. Don't know. It's going to be interesting to take that take on it. But I do, yeah, I mean, Aprilia as a team are coming along. I mean, again, and Simon Crafer made this point as well. You know, I think we've been in that vein as well, Rich. Was that hey look you know the all the top people at the top of the list bar Quattraro are on an Italian motorcycle yeah. a European motorcycle right so it's like hey they've apparently you know have gotten their head around this aerodynamics around these shape shifting bikes around the winglets and all that kind of stuff and it's not where the Japanese 
apparently haven't quite got there yet. So it's a little interesting. You do know that the Japanese do develop, but they develop very, very slowly. They do not take the big risk. It's just not in their nature. We haven't spoken about a Honda, but really, yeah. there's nothing to say. Miserable. Absolutely horrendous. Nothing Horrendous to say. weekend. Without the guy who can ride your bike. The second point I was going to raise, and obviously it's the elephant in the room, as the saying goes, is the punishment that was meted out to Quattararo post-race. Again, why do it post-race? But anyway, I mean, I, it, it was post-race. Don't even but, get me started there. I mean, in my sort of brief notes that I wrote, I put the penalty slash WTF, which I won't obviously say what that means. Everybody knows what that means. I think means, we get but, it, though. Yeah. Was that worthy of a penalty, in your view? Any penalty. Okay. Quattararo should not have been penalized, period. Full stop. Stop. Hey, guess what? He wound up tucking the front end of his motorcycle and he crashed. I'm sorry that Aleish had to take avoiding action to go around the outside of that motorcycle, but Quattararo never touched Aleish at all. Now, if Quattararo had barged in there under the underside, put the elbow on Aleish and bumped him out and then fell off, fine. Give him a penalty. He never touched him. And then you got Nakagami who gets absolutely zero and he took out three people yeah. for doing an absolutely boneheaded move at the beginning of the race in Barcelona. Seriously? Oh, that is such BS from race direction. I am beside myself on that one, especially because we know that Freddie Spencer's race steward. And I just can't believe that Freddie doesn't, isn't, I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything bad about the stewards. I'll stop right there. Okay. But, I think it's important uh, to note, and this is probably stuff that's come out in the last 24 hours, I guess, but Yamaha or, or the last 48 hours, Yamaha appealed the penalty. I would. Their appeal was rejected. So that the, Penalty to Quattro stands, and that has prompted some fairly frank statements. Which, if you'll indulge me, I'll just because I've, I've got them on screen ready. So the first one I saw was Quattro, who is in the modern context of sports stars that speak out against their governing body, let's say, or the stewarding of the sport, is flirting. I think a bit close to the line in terms of getting further sanction, but I completely understand. So to paraphrase, he said, uh, a long lap penalty for the next race now you can't overtake because i think you're too ambitious from beginning of the year other riders make racing incidents but apparently mine was too dangerous congratulations to the stewards for the amazing job you're doing i think there's a hint of sarcasm there oh yeah that's next time i won't try and overtake because i'm going to be thinking about a penalty have a great holiday so i mean that went out on twitter earlier on and is completely understandable in my view oh i don't blame him at all Lynn Jarvis, your best mate, then goes on to say, and this one is even <laughs> more cutting, really. Monster Energy Yamaha MotoGP acknowledges that Alicia Spargo's race was affected, but the severeness of the impact is a matter of conjecture. Uh, Yamaha feel that the FIM MotoGP stewards panel is measuring the severity of race incidents with inconsistent subjective standards. As we have said, Jim, numerous times, the inconsistency with which penalties are, are applied by the stewards during 2022 and the fairness of MotoGP and the faith of the stewards jurisdiction is basically in question so uh, and it goes on but you know that those are some pretty harsh words coming from rider and team against an already fairly battered and beleaguered stewarding panel and you do wonder how long Dorna the FIM etc whoever's in charge of that particular aspect can let this go on because I mean it's just bonkersly bizarre in terms of who gets a penalty and who doesn't for things that are seemingly and then you've got riders crashing in yellow flag zones, almost killing, let's be honest, I mean, that crash in Moto3 qualifying or whatever it was that we were talking about earlier on was really, really dangerous. And you get a long lap. Yep. I just don't 
see where this ends really other than a complete no. overhaul of the whole system i yeah again oof i'll okay i'll say it because i can i think this is direct manipulation by the stewards to give aprilia a better chance at winning this world championship because it looks better for the people who are running the show mm. well you do sort of drift into conspiracy don't you seriously after what happened with nakagami now if nakagami got a long lap penalty that had been fine but then you sit there and you say no he doesn't get a penalty yet quattro gets a penalty there's something else that gave them that penalty because and i kind of suspected this was coming because what did they flash up on the screen the stewards will review this incident after the race ugh no Every decision the stewards make should be made during the race. If you don't have enough stewards to watch what else is going on, guess what? Get more stewards. That's the point of this. Okay? I'm, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb on this one, Jim, and I'm going to suggest that this one's causing so much ire and con- you know consternation, not just amongst the fan base, but when you've got team principals sending out messages on the actual official Dorna site that's been published by the way as well. Exactly, yeah. All right. You do wonder if we're sort of strolling into Michael Massey kind of levels of oh, completely, yeah. this can't yep. go on like this. You know, you need a change. And nothing against Freddie Spencer because he's not the only guy making he's not these the only, decisions. He's not the only steward. I don't know who the other one, I can't, I don't remember who the other ones are, but let's just say stewards in general. Let's just keep it that way. Let's not name names. Um, I think it was uh, our friend of the show, although he's not been on the show, but uh, although hopefully we'll change that one day, but uh, a guy that I've got a lot of time for, he's very controversial, but Simon Patterson, made a very good point, which was that perhaps what they ought to be looking to introduce is a a fourth steward who's not a motor racing person, hasn't been a rider, isn't involved in sport, you know, somebody like a barrister, you know, criminal barrister or somebody, somebody that can weigh arguments and be impartial in terms of not getting caught up in the who's in the head of the championship or whatever. Somebody just to create some checks and balances around and can read rules and laws and come down in terms of what is an appropriate measure to take against whatever the particular infraction is that they're looking at. Because the, the problem, as we've said multiple times, and this one just proves it beyond all doubt now, is, is the complete inconsistency of what they're doing. It's, yeah. it's just ludicrous now. I'm sorry, this is becoming a joke. It is. I mean, it, it, it is becoming a flat joke it's almost as ludicrous as michael massey in last the last race at dubai in f1 irrespective jim of the particulars around that formula one grand prix and who won the title and who didn't stuff but it it was just creating new rules and new decisions on things you know just making it up as you go along and that's kind of where we are now i'll tell you who would be a great person to bring in if they were going to replace the figurehead of sort of freddie spencer and not that this guy's got the spare time to do it and probably wouldn't want to but Stuart Higgs, who's the race director of BSB, you never get a bad call in BSB. Never. I mean, I've just never seen a bad call in BSB. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're just on it all the time. They make swift decisions, fair decisions, and they follow a set of rules. Uh, and if you don't like the decision, well, fair enough. But, you know, there isn't this kind of bizarre kind of race to race. One rule for Moto3, a different rule for MotoGP. And then even within MotoGP now, as you say, Nakagami, gets off scot-free despite the fact that two riders go out, one of whom ends up with a broken wrist, which finishes off any chances he had of title hopes, although there there are other reasons for that as well. But, you know, and then a guy who's just making a genuine overtake attempt doesn't hit anybody. And, you know, you get slapped with a, what is it, a long lap? uh, Long lap. Yeah, which which again, okay, how much of a penalty really is that? But it it slows him down a bit. Just, yeah, I, I just sort of weep inside because it kind of brings our sport into disrepute really and it creates the sort of headlines that we shouldn't be creating mm-hmm. i agree i like the idea that there should be someone impartial that could look at not the call 
But okay, race direction is fine. They've made a call against Quattraro. There needs to be someone else, uh, like an arbitrator, yeah, who sits, who has no say in any, no, no skin, in an, an independent party, right? Independent person. Yeah. Hey, this is we're presenting to you the facts. Hey, we think this is ridiculous because we never really knocked a leash off. Whatever, however you want to argue your side, and the arbitrator looks at it and says, you know what? You're right. This is kind of ridiculous. And you go back to the store and say, okay, why did you? What is your logic for this? Did you do? Why did you do this? Well, we thought, blah 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 blah. Okay. Well, you know what? I think that's ridiculous that you gave this guy a penalty and, you know, hey, this guy never got a penalty. So guess what? Let's rescind this penalty or worst case, let's say you drop three grid spots from your qualifying. Right. OK, that's a little that's a little sneak bit into my if I run MotoGP as a steward, mm. <laughs> I have grid drops that are going to happen. So anyway. Yeah. Well, points deductions or, or something like that, but, uh, as we've spoken about Correct. before. But you, you got to at the very least be even handed in judging two. Well, I don't even think the Nakagami and the Quattraro incidents are similar at all. Oh, they're not even close to being similar. They're not similar. even close to That's being the problem. Similar. They are so different that the outcome of the two are completely reversed. You know, the penalty that Quattraro gets should have been what Nakagami got, and what Nakagami got for a penalty should be what Quattraro got. Yeah. This is this one, again, okay, this is the – here it comes. As soon as you get to Silverstone – Quattro has to take a long lap on a fast track like that. Is he going to be able to make up the places? I'm going to kind of guess that he's not going to kind of be near the podium, but in that maybe five, six, seven spot, right? Malaysia has a great shot of being on the podium again. So guess what? Instead of being, you know, you tighten that gap up again to basically almost make them even. Yeah. You are now artificially determining a championship, which is, that is not what the stewards are supposed to be there for. In my mind, the stewards are supposed to be there to control the race here's a set of set rules you've done this you are now going to have to serve x penalty because you know this is what would happen if you did break these rules and since you did break these rules it's like parenting right you look at your kid and you lay down like hey you can't your curfew is x i want you home by midnight let's pick a number here right so guess what it becomes it's like hey it's 1201 and they're sneaking in the door what do you do is there any leeway is there any grace is there anything here well hey you didn't call you didn't say you had car trouble. You didn't say that you had to drop a friend off. So guess what? You're now grounded. So you're not going out for two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same theory, right? But but what they're doing in MotoGP at the moment is the following week, your kid gets back or you know, after the right. race of their it's suspension, like, oh, okay, they come well, back at two minutes, minutes past midnight. And, you, and you, you're, not, you're not grounded now. Yeah. Everything's okay. Yeah. And that's the problem, um, isn't it? I mean, we can argue about, and we have argued, and we'll no doubt have a lively discussion with the subscribers in a couple of weeks. Yes, we will. About how many rules there are and what punishments should go with various infringements. And that's a debate all on of its own. But yes. if, if you can't even dish out the punishments in an even-handed way, or even worse than that, you kind of don't punish one thing that is so obviously, well, maybe Nakagami didn't deserve a penalty. Maybe that's the case. But if that's the case, then it's a yeah, dead cert that Quattro didn't deserve a penalty. So, I mean, you just go around in circles and all you end up with is just confusion and anarchy, which is where we are. And it's not very healthy, really. So I guess we need to stop. We should, because we'll just keep going for... I'm sure the listeners are going to sort of tell us what they think and oh, um, yeah, bring it on. And we'll discuss it on the Zoom call with the subscribers in a couple of weeks, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's something to add to the shows between for those five weeks. With that said... Anything you guys want to talk to us about, please do do it by writing into motopod at motopodcast.com. You can reach out to me at Instagram and Twitter at MotoRGV. Rich, you are on Twitter and Instagram at Richard Jowett. 
Just at Richard Jowett. Yep, at Richard Jowett. So there you go, guys. You can reach out to all of us. We'll talk about all this. This is going to carry on to the whole summer break. It's not going to go away. I hate to tell you that. But until we get back to the next one, I'm leaving and heading off for Fourth of July holiday weekend. So I will not be around for a little bit. We, Rich and I, will convene uh, next week. We will have another show over whatever it is that we decided. We've got a list of things for the five weeks in between. So don't worry, guys. Well, we've got a lot of listener feedback to get through, haven't we? we I think think it's going to be a listener feedback show. Yeah, we were going to dedicate a show to that. I've also got a couple of the guys that we interviewed earlier in the year from Eurosport coming back on just to do a half-term report on things like World Superbike and British Superbike. So we'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks. There's going to be a Moto A wrap-up by me as to what's been going on, and we'll cover that as well oh speaking of moto america l american fans of the show if you are going to moto america in pittsburgh in august i will be there um you can find me there hit me up instagram twitter you know where oh with all that rich i think that's everything we need to get out of here likewise you know i'm planning to be at silverstone for moto gp um, okay rich will be at silverstone first weekend of august so same thing applies um i don't know how i'll make myself obvious because i'll probably be a bit hot to wear my motopod jacket well, unless we have weather like we had three years ago, uh, where it's kind of monsoonal and freezing cold, but hopefully that won't be the case in August this time around. Yep. But yeah, hopefully we'll get to catch up with some people at our respective events that we go to, Jim. All right then, people. Until we come back again, I want you all to ride safe. Cheers. Thanks, everyone.